thank you. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I was very interested in what Sarah was saying because I was pretty confident that some of the issues that I've come across, that I've discussed with um, colleagues and co-workers, would be very similar to issues that are being raised by women across the economy. And I'm very encouraged from listening to Sarah that that is absolutely right. I mean, Sarah talked about um, law firms. Um, and I started as a, a trainee back in 1990, a very long time ago, um, working for the, the biggest law firm in the country at the time, uh, which is called Clifford Chance. And I was sort of quite chirpy about my future prospects because when I was at law school, 50% uh, of the intake then was made up of women. And when I joined as a trainee, about 50% of us were women. And I turned to the to my supervisor, the person I sort of shared a room with whose job was to trade me. And I said to her, I think things are going to be very different for my generation because 50% of us are women. And she said, well, 10 years ago when I was at law school, 50% of us were women and nothing much has happened. She was broadly right for a very long time. Um, nowadays, more than 50% of women at law schools and, and coming in as trainees into large city firms are, are women. Our intake is about 60%. And I'm generally told that it would be higher if we didn't positively discriminate in favor of the men because we have confidence that they'll mature um, past, our, <laughs> past our training processes. I mean, really. Um, and so, and yet at the moment, about 20% of our partnership is male, and that is after um, five or six years of very concentrated um, efforts to try and promote, promote more women. So the way um, law firms, and especially city law firms, work is that you have, um, and they, they're owned by the partners um, who sort of sit at the top of the heap, and then... We have trainee lawyers um, at the start of their careers, and they become more and more senior. And typically, eight, nine, ten years after they've qualified, we vote and decide who we're going to take on as a as a new partner. So when you start as a trainee, if you're you know career-minded, your plan is that in ten years' time you're going to become a partner. And back when I started, once you became a partner, you would have a particular share of the profits. And as you became a more senior partner, you would get a bigger and bigger share of the profits every year, irrespective of what you were doing. It was called a lockstep. Now, over the last 20 years or so, a lot of that has changed. So now, when you become a partner, you get a tiny share of the profits. And um, you, after three or four years, people will look to see whether they'll let you into the equity, where your entire um, income is based on the profits of the firm. And nowadays, um, how much, you know, how quickly you go up that particular ladder depends upon how profitable your practice is. And you're not going to be surprised to find that although when I tell you that 20% of our women, uh, of our partners are women, an awful lot of them will be salaried partners, the people who are getting a tiny percentage of the equity. And you'll also not be surprised to find that when women do move into the full equity, um, they'll tend to stay at the bottom end of that and they're not going to be right at the top of the equity because for a whole host of reasons and you know we've been trying to to grapple with that other big city law firms have been trying to grapple with that we talk to our clients who are for example investment banks um, and accountancy firms we tend to find that accountancy firms are sort of have 
been tackling these issues for longer than we have. And we've looked very hard at where the barriers are, what's stopping these 60% plus of very talented women um, not staying on and becoming 60% of our partners. And, and, and it, you know, what we're finding is very sort of similar to the sorts of issues that, that Sarah was raising. And there are all sorts of reports out there that you can go off and read. So something like Opportunity Now, which some of you may have seen, which is a, uh, a report chaired by Helena Morrissey, who heads up the 30% Club, which sort of interviewed mostly women aged between 28 and 40, the sort of the key point at which you're going to make um, a big progression in your career. It was very interesting that the points that were raised by that kind of report broadly tie in with what I hear when our diversity committee sort of meets with women and men in the firm um, and then sort of meets with the, our equivalents in, in other institutions. And what we're, what we're finding is that women leave sort of from about two years after qualification. They're going for a whole host of reasons. One of the reasons they go is lifestyle. Our kind of job requires um, working ridiculously long hours, you tend to have to sacrifice a great deal of your personal life for the office. And most women don't, their identity is not wholly tied up in their career. They tend to have multiple identities. Their careers are very important to them, but giving up the whole of their life in order to achieve this magic status of a partner is not all that interesting for many of them. So they leave to get a job which allows them to have a more balanced life. Many of them really worry about having a family long before they're actually going to have a family. They start worrying about how they're going to accommodate the demands of a family with a point in their careers when they're going to be working incredibly hard in the year or two up for partnership um, to try and, and persuade us to vote for them as a partner. Now, that tends to come around the ages of 33, 34, 35, you know, the very point at which women, if they have already had a child are thinking very hard about whether they're going to and how they're going to. Um, so I mean, it's very interesting that th those of you who've read um, uh, Lean In when, um, uh, what's her name, is it Sh uh, Sandberg, um, she talks about women worrying about things before they have to. She talks about, you know, you haven't got a child yet, you're not thinking about having a child yet, you're already making these accommodations. You know, we see it. We see, you know, people like my trainee thinking, uh, in a, you know, in, by the time I'm 30, I'd like to have a family. This job isn't going to accommodate it, so I'm going to think about an alternative. And there's also an issue around confidence. A lot of very confident, you know, a lot of very capable um, highly valued women lawyers don't believe that we're looking at them as potential partners. And a few years ago, we set up um, a high um, uh, uh, sort of a, 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 a thing we call talent in the pipeline, where the women that we were identifying as real partners of the future were sort of given some mentoring, they were given personal training, and certainly one utterly brilliant associate in my group was amazed to be in that in that group of people. She had never realised that we all thought she was completely fantastic. She wasn't convinced that it was the career that she wanted for the long term for herself. But the fact that 
you know, I am pretty confident that if she had been a man, she would have realised that um, that people valued her very highly indeed. So it's very interesting that there's that element of uh, not enough confidence as their male counterparts. Um, so. There have been all sorts of reasons, and we're trying to address how, how we can um, try and accommodate some of those very real concerns. The other thing that we're seeing is that young men coming into the profession seem to have a slightly different expectation of life as well. They're not as persuaded that if they kill themselves working for 10 years, then they can carry on killing themselves for another 20, but we'll just pay them more for it. They tend to want a bit more out of life. They tend to want to participate more fully um, in their families. And so some of the changes that we're looking at to try and encourage women to stay in the firm, I think will also be very attractive to um, men who are coming into the firm. So this is not really just an issue about making life for women easier in the workplace. It's about making the, wo the workplace itself accommodate life in the 21st century. And that sort of Gordon Gecko approach, which was you, you, know, you work hard, you earn a lot of money, and that's all that matters in life, that's increasingly not a particularly attractive proposition to, to put to young people. Um, so the, the sort of issues that we found um, were really uh, causing issues uh, for, for our female associates and, and for women in the city generally. I think for us, the, the, the biggest problem is child care. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the, I'm sorry that the Fawcett Society aren't here, but it's something I keep discussing with them. The way the legislation works at the moment, you get help with childcare unless you earn, I think it's about 65, 66,000 pounds. And at that point, there's an expectation that you can fund your own childcare. Well, if you're a three, four year qualified lawyer in a city law firm, you're going to be earning more than that. Um, but you can't put your child in a nursery typically because you can't leave at five o'clock to go and pick up your child. You need pretty flexible childcare. And so what we found was that especially when people had more than one child, their entire net income was going on their gross employment costs. Because you know, if you've got, if you're employing someone to look after your child, you're typically paying their national insurance and their tax as well. So literally every penny they were earning was being handed over to somebody else to look after their child. And a lot of women decided that that just wasn't a price worth paying. So if we want very capable women heading up banks, heading up law firms, heading up accountancy firms, I think we have to stop discriminating and say childcare is something that society needs to value as a whole. And the state has to provide wraparound childcare. And the costs of that need to be <coughs> tax deductible at the very least. It just seems extraordinary to me that people are handing over their entire salary to some private provider of childcare. And then we're sitting here saying, oh, there just aren't enough women to go on boards. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, I think um, we need to have non-linear careers. So in too many places, like law firms and others, um, you start on day one, year nine, it used to be eight, it's getting pushed out further and further, but year nine, year ten, you've either become a partner or you're kind of, it's time for you to go. And that point at which it's time for you to go is the time that you're, you're having your family. We need people to be able to stop and start their careers in order to meet all the other demands of life. There is nothing in the world that says a 35-year partner is a better thing than a 40-year partner or a 45-year partner. And I think medicine has done this much better and so we're 
we're increasingly seeing many more women consultants who spend, you know, who, I mean, like a friend of mine is, is working three days a week. It's going to take her longer to become a consultant, but she'll get there eventually and she'll have been able to bring up her children the way that she wants. So I think we, we need to be able to do that. There's a big worry about if you're off on maternity leave and you come back to the workforce, there's, there have got to be measures in place to integrate you back into your own team. You don't get marginalised and put on what the Americans call the mommy track, which is going nowhere fast. You, know, you need to come back into your team, and if that means job sharing or you know, being allowed to work from home two days a week or whatever it is, you should be allowed to do that. Um, one of the things that I found kind of depressing was that um, uh, one of my very good associates decided to leave, and um, we were chatting about why, and you know, because she was brilliant. And she said, I just don't want to have the life you're leading. It's not at all attractive to me. And that sense of senior jobs not being attractive to women, it, it's quite a theme. It gets reflected all the time. And what this associate saw me, I have two children who are now eight and 10. Um, I work very long hours in a very male environment which during the financial crisis is, is very competitive and aggressive because there's not enough work around, so people are not being very collegiate about it. And sort of watching you know, someone like me scrabbling around trying to keep all of those balls in the air, you know, if you're a young, capable woman, I think it's legitimate to say, well, that's not, that's not particularly attractive. I'll go and find something else to do. I think senior jobs have got to become a little less painful than they are at the moment. One of the uh, the people that I, I had an event on Wednesday where I wanted to talk to a, a broad range of uh, women in the city about what they would put forward for a working women's charter. And one of them was, I thought, extraordinarily enthusiastic about shared parental leave. She thought that was a complete game changer. And so that banks like hers, looking at a, a person, you know, a young woman coming into the workplace, would no longer say, well, you know, in three years' time she's going off on maternity leave and will never get the same level of commitment from her again. I, mean, I, I don't know whether it's going to be the kind of game changer that she believes it is, asking other people they were not convinced that their partners and other halves would be willing to genuinely share parental leave, but the fact that it's available and that employers are not absolutely certain that it's always the woman who's going to take leave is a, is a good thing. Um, some of the, the, the issues that I, I thought um, the Opportunity Now report raised that were interesting was the level of bullying um, that women in the workplace feel. I mean, women tend not to be very aggressive on the whole, and if you're a bully, then you know maybe that's an easy target. And th the other thing that was interesting is that women are not very impressed by super women. You know, the woman who has eight children and does some incredibly glamorous job, most people just look at that person and think, that's not me, I don't want to be that person, stop telling me I can be that person, because I want a real person that I can look at and model my potential career against. So it was interesting that the media, which loves superwomen, isn't doing most women much of a, a favour. But that there are some, some issues that I, I, that I wanted to raise, which, I, I again, I think tie in with what Sarah said. One of the things that I've noticed um, with my peers um, who are... I'm thinking particularly of three or four 
women um, who, who are extremely senior in investment banks is, these are women who have been highly focused on their careers for the last 20, 25 years, is the toll that the recession has taken on them. If you work in a high profile job at the moment, um, you are battered and bruised, and I think women take that more personally than men. And so some of those very senior women, I think, will leave their careers maybe five or ten years earlier than their male counterparts will do, just because of the pressure that they have felt. So that was very interesting. Zero hours contracts is a real problem in the law. Um, Agencies like Axiom are now providing hundreds of lawyers to law firms and banks, and they are you know, literally getting paid for the days that they work, and they, they turn up this week, and then they don't turn up the next week. And that is, it's a big problem. It's not just something that shop workers and low-paid women are experiencing. And I think that ethnic minority women, LGBT women, and people women with disabilities are definitely suffering double and triple burdens and there is recorded evidence of that. John's just told me that I've got to, to, to finish up but I, I, think, I think there are some solutions. We were discussing them earlier. Things like tax-free childcare, workplace nurseries, transparency. I think the one thing that the Davis report has shown us is that if you put a spotlight on some of these issues and employers are held responsible for the decisions that they're making, then they change their behaviour. So for me, disclosure in annual reports of statistics around employment will help to make a big difference. But hopefully we can discuss all of this shortly. Thank you very much.